0: On the day after Christmas in 1811, the state of Virginia lost its governor and almost 100 citizens in a devastating nighttime fire that consumed a Richmond playhouse. The tragic Richmond Theater fire would inspire a national commemoration and become its generation's defining disaster. In the Richmond Theater fire, the book about the event and its aftermath, our speaker explores a forgotten catastrophe and its wide societal impact. The tale of transformation comes alive through survivor accounts of actors, ministers, slaves, and statesmen, and reveals a rich and vital untold story of America's past. Meredith Henny Baker graduated from Hillsdale College and received her graduate degree in American history and a museum studies certificate from the College of William and Mary. She's held positions as a museum educator, an administrator at a public charter school, and a history instructor at St. Margaret's School in Tappahannock. She currently writes from Washington, D.C., where she lives on Capitol Hill with her husband and two children. Her book, The Richmond Theater Fire, Early America's First Great Disaster, won the 2012 Jules and Francis F. Landry Award, bestowed annually to the most outstanding book on a southern topic published by Louisiana State University Press. It also garnered the Phi Alpha Theta History Honors Society Best First Book Award for 2012. One critic called the Richmond Theatre Fire, quote, the best study yet of antebellum Richmond. A reviewer for the Richmond Times-Dispatch declared it to be, quote, an important chronicle of a tragedy that marked and changed Richmond. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome for Meredith Henny Baker, who will speak to us today about the 1811 Richmond Theatre Fire.
1: Thank you so much for coming today. Uh, it's definitely an honor to be here and to be included among the many interesting um, historians and speakers who've given Banner Lectures uh, in the past, and I've been sitting where you are, so I'm really happy to, happy to be here and have the honor of speaking. Um, as Paul said, I'm Meredith Henney Baker, and the Richmond Theatre Fire, Early America's First Great Disaster is my first book. And by way of backstory, I began studying the Richmond Theatre Fire in 2004 when I was a graduate student in the American History Program at William & Mary. And my advisor suggested that I find something uh, local, and so I started uh, looking through a sermon collection. I happened across a collection of sermons. And um, I found uh, one about a fire in 1811, and it was by the, uh, the founder of Princeton Theological Seminary. And then I found another about a fire in 1811, and it was by a suicidal Unitarian schismatic, as it turned out. And then I found another one about a theater fire, and it was by a Quaker abolitionist in York, England. And I thought, what happened in 1811 that made such an impact across uh, both sides of the Atlantic and in such a wide variety of people? What, What was this fire? And I began to dig. And I kept finding more letters and more uh, wonderful diary entries, Um, a lot of newspaper articles, magazine articles, um, and all of these things helped to piece together a more complete story of the Richmond Theater Fire that happened uh, here in Richmond, Virginia, uh, December 26th, 1811, uh, when over 70 people were killed. And Although fires were, were very common, of course, in the early Republic, Surprisingly enough they were rarely fatal. You you don't find a lot of fires that had mass casualties. So for that reason, uh, the Richmond fire stood out and as one Virginia Baptist minister explained in 1891, we hear now of the sinking of a noble ocean steamer with hundreds of valuable passengers on board and we hardly deem it necessary to inquire for her name. It was far otherwise when the theater was burned. The whole country was filled with amazement and sorrow, and for weeks it was almost the only theme of conversation for hundreds of miles around the scene of the disaster. Uh, It also resulted in, as I mentioned, a lot of uh, sermons and pamphlets. Here are a few of them. Uh, And also, uh, it deeply shook America, not only in Virginia, but uh, in the Virginia legislature, but in the United States Congress. They wore black armbands for a month in memory of those who had died it was at the time considered to be the worst urban catastrophe in American history um, and to put it in perspective uh, Richmond at that time had about 10,000 people in the in the population and with nearly 100 dead that was a almost a full percentage of the population. Um, so This disaster really captured my imagination, and and I wanted to look more into it. And as I did, um, I looked for other books that had been written about it, and I found nothing. And at that point, I thought, I am the luckiest graduate student (laughs) ever. This is amazing. Um, And so uh, I I began to, to work on it. It became the topic of my thesis. And then after I transitioned out of the academic world, uh, at the encouragement of some other historians and writer friends who said, this is, this is a great story, this has to be told. I continued to write um, on the side in my spare time um, as an independent historian. And on that note, I would like to uh, express my, my deep thanks to institutions like the Virginia Historical Society um, who offer their amazing um, holdings to the public because certainly as an independent historian, I was deeply indebted to, um, uh, and very happy to be able to have access to the kinds of wonderful materials that I did here. Um, and I, I was thrilled to learn uh, in two thousand nine that Louisiana State University Press uh, was interested in in my manuscript, and I spent the next three years working with them, editing and compiling uh, the final the final manuscript, and also within that time frame, I had two children and so um, it turns out they require a lot of attention so <laughs> I I should be clear, I don't recommend writing a book with a thousand footnotes with two children in diapers, but you get done what you have to. And um, this situation probably explains why, if you look in the acknowledgements, I thank nearly as many people for babysitting as I do for assistance in research. Um, and frankly, it still seems a little bit astonishing that I'm, that I'm here at all, but, I, but as I mentioned, I'm very pleased that this is, that this is the case. Um, back to the book, in, in writing The Richmond Theatre Fire, I had two goals. One was that I wanted to take all of these primary sources, all of these wonderful survivor accounts that I found, and I wanted to weave them together and tell the most complete and evocative story possible of the fire itself, what happened that night. And then the second thing that I wanted to do was to show how this fire was a catalyst for real cultural change in Virginia, which I believe the evidence um, points to the fact that that it was. And some of you here are probably very familiar with the Richmond Theatre Fire. Um, If I I know one thing about an audience in Richmond, it's that I've got a fair number of history enthusiasts, and so uh, others may be new to the story of the fire, though, so I'm gonna provide you with a short synopsis of the event uh, with the caveat that in in our time frame, it's only possible really to tell a story of the fire today, not really the whole story of the fire. And I find that the most interesting way to approach history is through the eyes of someone who's experienced it. So today I've picked someone to be our tour guide for the fire. Um, This is a woman who survived the fire and who went on to experience and exemplify some of the cultural changes that happened in Richmond. Her name is Caroline Homassell Thornton. Unfortunately, I don't have a better image of this than her. This was around the 1830s. At the time of the fire, she was 16 years old. And her papers are here in the Virginia Historical Society. So let's pre- begin her story at the Richmond Theater on this chilly December evening in 1811. Um, in the theater with her are Virginians and those from farther flung states who have poured into the city to celebrate the holidays and participate in the legislative season either by representing their constituents and or by attending the soirees, dances, and the entertainments hosted throughout the town during this brief session. It's a very festive time of year in Richmond. And to grant an idea of the prominence of the the legislative session here, I'd like to quote something from the Washington Post in 1904. They wrote, the convening of the Virginia legislature and the opening of the social season in Richmond was in the Anglo-Saxon world second only to the opening of Parliament in London. And It dismissed uh, the opening of Congress in Washington City that year as, and I quote, a small affair in a small town. (laughs) Um, But tonight in Richmond, on December 26th, the place to be is the Richmond Theater. The troupe that was performing was the Placide and Green Company. They were not a resident company. They would pass through. Um, And they were one of the finest in the South at that point. They were extremely popular. Um, And you may recognize the name of one of their actresses, Elizabeth Arnold Poe, mother of Edgar Allan Poe, was a member of the Placide and Green Company. She was not at uh, the the theater that evening. She had actually died probably of tuberculosis earlier in December. Um, Edgar Allan Poe would later claim that she had died in the fire, but that is is incorrect. Uh, She did not. That evening, the troupe was performing a drama by Diderot. It was translated by a fascinating local polymath and French refugee, louis Way Girardin, which if any of you are looking for a book idea, this guy would be a great start. Um, He he was a local headmaster, and uh, he wrote the main piece. And then there were a few hornpipes and dances and short songs. And then uh, the next piece was Raymond and Agnes or The Bleeding Nun. This was a melodrama that was going to be performed. Um, And because the troupe was about to leave town, as they note, last week of performances the season on the top. So uh, there was a full house that night. The theater comfortably seated about 500. There were 580 tickets sold. Um, And the theater was very popular. It was a celebrated art in the American South at this time. The South was home to the first play performed in English, the first college dramatic performance, the first professional actor, and the first theater. Yet it was not without its critics. Um, many moralists of the day, most fell into the categories of Calvinist, northern, or evangelical, but they attacked the theater as a danger to citizens and even the American Republic. And my favorite reactionary is Reese Lloyd. He wrote, as um, an independent minister from Philadelphia, and he wrote this fascinating um, sermon about uh, the theater after the Richmond fire and he wrote, I am persuaded it is my duty to declare all those who encourage the sinful practice of plays, etc., are not worthy in this respect to be called Christians because they promote the cause of Satan. And uh, Virginia Presbyterian Archibald Alexander, who was the first president of Princeton Theological Seminary, wrote, I feel it to be incumbent on me without expecting to make any considerable impression on a public excessively devoted to these amusements. I give my public testimony against them as being on the whole, this is all caps in the original, unfriendly to piety, unfriendly to morality, unfriendly to health, unfriendly to domestic happiness, and unfriendly to true delicacy and genuine refinement." Now, Alexander was correct. He and, he and the other theater critics of the day did not um, put a significant dent in theater attendance in Virginia um, until the theater fire. Uh, which significantly tempered it. More later on this. Um, to give you an idea of what the theater looked like that night, I have, uh, I have this image that an artist helped me create based on the documents. And uh, to give you a quick look, the, the main seating right here, this was the main door, one major entrance. Uh, and then there was a, a st- staircase that ran three stories high, single staircase. Uh, the pit seating was right here in the middle. And then the box seating, which was the most expensive, was here. Uh, the gallery was up here, this is where people sort of on the fringes of respectability would sit. They had their own private door here so that they wouldn't be mixing with the general population. This would include um, blacks freed or slave, those of mixed race, uh, prostitutes. Um, they would all be um, admitted at this door to go up and sit on the top. Uh, because of this door, many of them, most of them, were able to escape quickly. Those in the pit also could escape quickly because they had a straight shot to the door. The people in the box seats were in the worst position to escape Um, because of the very narrow hallways. um, It it was said that scarcely two people could pass one another in the narrow lobbies that led to the staircases. And then here's the door that the cast and the crew could go in and out of. Um, Another picture of the box seats is here to give you more of an idea. They would put a number of people inside. You'd have a good crowd in some of them. Uh, overlooking the, the performance. Um, the five-year-old brick theater was not too large. The deed indicated that it was about 90 feet in length, 50 in width, and about 30 feet high in the front. It had offices, a green room, a dressing room. It was designed for intimate shows and family concerts. And um, going to a show at the Richmond Theater was, was not uh, a subdued viewing experience in a quiet, darkened room. It was quite rowdy. The primary documents indicate that Early Republic audiences were blatantly disruptive. Often the house lights were kept on throughout the entire performance, sort of like having a television running in the background at your party. People were enjoying themselves and occasionally the performance, but um, it was a C and B scene and enjoy your friends kind of event. Uh, Richmond theater managers prohibited the wearing of men's hats, putting feet on your seats, hanging your feet over the front of the boxes. Loud conversation, disorderliness, and smoking among other violations, which of course means that these must have regularly occurred. And I would recommend if you're interested in theater culture, uh, uh, an excellent book by Patricia Click called The Spirit of the Times. Um, But back to Caroline Thornton, let's go to box eight, where she was sitting surrounded by about a dozen friends and family. These were local dignitaries, manufacturing tycoons, um, prominent politicians, present and former. Um, 16-year-old Caroline was the adopted daughter of her uncle He was a wealthy flour mill owner, John Richard of the Richard and Gallagher Mills. And uh, John Richard and his wife Mary had adopted her, she considered them her parents. They doted on her if she wanted a harp, a trip to the Sulphur Springs, a diamond necklace, it was as good as hers. Uh, And although her indulgent parents and her friends in the theater that evening were keeping the mood light, she found herself with a heavy heart as she described later. Uh, She was still grieving the untimely death of her fiance, Alfred Madison, who was nephew to President James Madison. They had been engaged when she was 14, and the following year, he had died suddenly. So now she's 16 and still grieving. Hopeful suitor Philip Thornton is also in box eight. He is a doctor, he's twice Caroline's age. He has been proposing since autumn, and he's not making any headway. Um, Around 11 p.m., Act two of The Bleeding Nun begins, and a chandelier set piece, which is unextinguished, has been raised into the fly space of the theater right up here. And I'm going to read just a portion of the book to describe what happened at this point. The tiny flame touched the bottommost piece of a backdrop and set it alight. Flames quickly licked up the hemp backing, flashing to the top of the scene. Within seconds, they'd leapt the six foot distance from the scenery to the pine ceiling, still covered with beads of rosin secreted in the previous summer's heat. The workman's eyes widened. He scrambled into the carpenter's gallery, dropping wings, backdrops, and double back flats to the floor backstage, one after another. The flame shot along the underside of the roof with a roar. He fled mm-hmm. for his life. The second act began. Player Hopkins Robertson looked on as an actor. Performing the part of the count assumed a kneeling position on stage before a portrait of an elegant lady. Robertson suddenly spotted flakes of burning canvas gently falling to the floor. It was mesmerizing. A piece the size of a hand floated downward and on contact exploded in a soft spray of sparks. He was baffled. Sparks were not planned for the scene. Another flake drifted past. Perplexed, he tipped his head upward and watched flames spread into the fly space, growing in a moment from the size of a handkerchief to the size of a bed sheet. He broke character, clumsily gestured to the audience and blurted, fire. Immediately the volume in the hall rose as audience members rustled out of their seats and bolted for the lobbies. A few women screamed, the sounds of crying and argument broke out. Another actor, Thomas West, looked behind the curtain and he saw the whole backstage area wrapped in flames. Frantically he tried to yank down burning pieces of the set, but he realized his efforts to smother this growing firestorm were availing nothing, and he dashed out the rear exit. Robertson ran to the box seats. Robertson ran to the box seats um, and held out his arms to the ladies inside. Jump into my arms, I can lead you to the private stage door, he called to them, but they were frozen in terror and confusion. Compelled to at least save himself, he ran to the exit but was cut off by the blaze. Within five minutes, the whole roof had turned into a sheet of flame. The pantomime's backdrop looked like a transparency behind which gleams of light showered. The curtain dropped and a very bright light emanated from behind. The crowd at last knew the danger was real and the festive atmosphere dissolved into sheer panic. Um, One of the men who was there that night was the editor of the uh, Richmond Inquirer, Thomas Ritchie. And he estimated that it probably took about 10 or 15 minutes for the fire to completely burn. He's probably correct. About every 90 seconds a fire roughly doubles in size and flashover, when the flammable smoke in the air ignites usually occurs about five to eight minutes after the flames appear and at that point the environment can no longer support human life. There was no time for a proper fire engine response although this woodcut from the time, um, pictures brave firemen spraying the fire, there there was no time for such action. Um, The blow by blow stories of escapes and disaster are covered in my text But in short, the few exit doors opened inward. No real building cones existed at the time to prevent such a thing. Narrow corridors quickly clogged with people who succumbed to carbon monoxide poisoning. The air turned black. The main staircase, crowded with victims, collapsed on itself. In desperation, many began leaping from the windows. In This aquatint, which was created in 1812 in Philadelphia, you can see people lowering themselves to safety from the windows, being pushed out, uh, lowering other people down trying to catch, trying to catch people uh, at the bottoms. You get an idea, too, of the confusion. The age ranges, too. There were many children there. Probably around 80 children's tickets were sold that night. Many of the victims were teenagers. Um, There are many striking stories of escape and despair. Uh, One of them, which I don't have a lot of time to get into, is uh, that of Gilbert Hunt, who was an enslaved blacksmith who rescued nearly a dozen women from the fire by catching them. One man writes about losing consciousness of being carried like a fishing bobber atop the crowd until he came to to some distance away. People fell from the windows like flaming stars clinging to one another. One mother stood frozen, framed by the windowpane after she dropped her toddler to safety and the crowds below watched her burn to death. Inside, rescuers found women affected by shock and smoke staggering zombie-like through the lurid lobby. Outside, the injured were seen crawling desperately away from the blaze with burned arms and broken legs. And actors, including the bleeding nun, as mentioned in in the uh, title, stumbled by wearing their costumes, clutching props, adding to the surreal horror of the scene. And if I can break for a moment, I'd like to mention that a prevalent idea at the time was that of the good death. And uh, this is eloquently discussed in Drew Gilpin Faust's wonderful book, This Republic of Suffering. Uh, But in a good death, you depart your life peacefully, privately, at home, surrounded by family, in your own bed, in your own house, with the opportunity at the end to profess your own faith and your hope of of heaven. Now, the ghastly ways in which the lives of the Richmond theater fire victims were snuffed out publicly, unexpectedly, often when in the prime of life, and often separated from family members and those they loved— This was exactly the opposite of a good death, and I think this helps to explain why this event filled Americans with such horror. This was the worst case scenario. This was the worst possible way to end your life. Uh, Caroline Thornton was spared from death this night. Dr. Thornton and her father, John Richard, saved her by dropping her out of a window and... I'll read that brief paragraph. John Richards smashed out a shutter for their escape and Philip Thornton quickly lowered Caroline Homassel down by her arms, suspending himself as far out of the window as possible to minimize the distance of her fall. She stiffened in fear, recognizing below the dead and bloodied body of Elmerine Marshall of With, Virginia, who had snapped his neck landing head first when he dove from the upper stories. Charles Hay had seen his own way out and his friend Doyle positioned themselves below they caught Caroline. Thornton followed after dislodging himself from the sill where he'd become partially caught. Portions of his coat were completely burned through to the skin, providing proof of his near escape. Um, by morning, all that was left at the theater were a few blackened walls, um, the remains of those who had died, and smoking timbers. The Inferno had consumed over 70 victims, including some of Richmond's most prominent and distinguished citizens, like Governor George Smith, who had uh, been governor for uh, only a few weeks, and former U.S. Senator Abraham B. Venable. Scarcely a single family of social consequence was left unaffected, and each house, it was said, seemed like a hospital. Now, in Caroline Homassel's home, family members were recovering from bruises, cuts, dislocated joints. Her father, John, had a compound fracture. He would never walk normally again. Several of her dearest friends, Sally Conyers, Mary Gallego, had been killed. And while Caroline was traumatized, she sustained no major injuries. Her suitor, Dr. Thornton, dedicated himself to her father's recovery and made himself indispensable. He spent every night at their home. He came whenever he wasn't without, uh, with other patients. Although he was so busy, she wrote that he kept three horses at the ready. There were so many house calls to make, so many that were injured after this fire. that He was incredibly busy. And he won her heart, or at least her sense of duty. <laughs> To her children, Caroline later wrote, that devoted attention towards my idolized parent was most acceptable to my feelings, and whilst many said I married your father from gratitude for the preservation of my life, it was more from that tender devoted attention to my beloved uncle, which was so appreciated by me and seemed to merit some return. (laughs) Thornton and Home were married in a somber small ceremony four months later by Reverend John Buchanan, the city's beloved Episcopal priest. And speaking of Episcopalians, let's transition now to the question of how this fire changed Virginia culture, specifically religious culture. And um, I might mention uh, books such as Lauren Winters, A Cheerful and Comfortable Faith, my late professor, Reese Isaacs, Transformation of Virginia, and Christine Herrmann's Southern Cross. These these are all books that wonderfully describe uh, the colonial religious climate in 17th and 18th century Virginia when the Anglican Church, later, of course, called the Episcopal Church, uh, was the state-supported church. And this, of course, right here is Henrico Parish, uh, now known as St. John's, which was the main Episcopal church in town, although not very well attended since it was a little bit difficult to get to. Um, although Anglican faith in the 17th and 18th centuries, up in to 1811, it was often practiced reverently in the home with prayer book and Bible, but it was also essentially a religion that was at ease with the world. It didn't mandate a sharp break from the culture of the day. In assel's case, her parents were lifelong Episcopalians and one of their many gifts to her was a much beloved Bible. They saw no conflict between their Christian faith and their lifestyle, which was typically of wealthy Virginians. Um, There was no spiritual or social consequences as far as they were concerned for card playing, dancing, theater going, or slave owning. All of these things were acceptable among their set. And Virginians had earned uh, a national reputation for hospitality, but also for frivolity at this time. Um, And overall, Virginians didn't seem a bit troubled by this. Killing time was something people aspired to and celebrated. Albion Seed by David Hackett Fisher has a marvelous description about uh, Virginia Timeways, I'd recommend that too. Um, to give you an idea about some of the attitudes toward, uh, toward leisure at the time, uh, Dubliner Isaac Weld visited Richmond in the late 18th century when he alighted off his horse by a Richmond tavern and the landlord's first question was, what game are you partial to? He waved a hand toward tables for faro, hazard and billiards. He wrote in astonishment, not the smallest secrecy is employed in keeping these tables, they're always crowded with people. Perhaps in no place the same size in the world is there more gambling going forward than in Richmond. Um, and a couple popular games at the time uh, were Lou and Whist. Uh, Lou was quite popular among women, so here's some early co-ed gambling going on here. Um, and also High Times at a Virginia Tavern. Uh, uh, Philip Vickers Fithian had the famous quote about Virginians will dance and die. He also describes horse races after church. People betting on nearly everything Tourist Henry Knight wrote, I saw a young man betted upon for $500 at a foot race. Indeed, everything is decided by a wager. What would a northern man think to see a father and a sensible and respected one, too, go out with a company and play at marbles? The Virginians are muscular and elastic in limb, and when leaving draughts, whist, backgammon, and chest for the evening, they're out jumping or out running each other. Now, I have no part or lot in these manners. Most young Virginians are too convivial for me. Um, also use of strong drink was common um, and there was no tax on distillation of spirits so consequently there was a very active market of providers and buyers and I, it was very interesting to read about how people saw Virginia from travelers journals, that's how um, uh, uh, quite a bit of the information that I that I found uh, about Richmond during the time I, I like to pull from travelers uh, to get their viewpoint. Um, several of them note the morning mint julep that was enjoyed by uh, many a Richmonder, and one actor wrote, after the mint julep, uh, this plantation owner he was visiting had another drink at 12 with a name like bumbo, apple toddy, or pumpkin flip. At three he dined and drank everything, brandy, claret, cider, Madeira, punch, sangria, and then had tea at tea time. So. Uh, and another, another writing at the time talks about a, a meal following a Sunday service at a, at a churchgoer's home that featured five different kinds of alcohol. Um, again, this was not something that, that people saw as being in conflict um, with their status as a respectable citizen or as a respectable Christian. This was not, this was not a problem. Um, this made others from outside... Um, critique Virginians. Uh, One called them cool in their religion, very much afraid of being righteous over much, as often at places of amusement as the church, and full of assurance they're a very good sort of people, have never done any harm in their lives, and so hope to go to heaven at last. Now, what these people were concerned about, Virginia's uh, traditionally Anglican gentry, was what they called fanaticism. Now, um, Homassel wrote that her parents dreaded my being what they termed it, fanatically religious. Um, they were referring to the evangelicalism that was spreading with the Second Great Awakening and the revivals that were occurring at that time across the South. This variety of the Christian faith emphasized a distinct conversion experience, gospel preaching and separation from the world. It's often emotional, you can see here in this picture, we have arms raised in prayer, we have people kneeling, we have a very enthusiastic minister. Um, This is not what you would see at uh, Henrico Parish, for example. Um, And joining these Christians often meant a significant change of lifestyle. Instead of killing time, these believers were endeavoring to redeem the time and use every moment uh, productively. And I found many stories of Virginians who, quote, got religion and promptly cut off their shirt ruffles, trimmed their hair, and tossed out their fiddles. This was, they were going to uh, live a different life. And one Baptist wrote, we do not want a congregant who can sing a jovial song at a tavern and the praises of God in his house. Yet culturally, this, this was how Virginians had lived for centuries, and the evangelicals were introducing a very different idea about what being a Christian looked like. And it, I did not gain significant headway in Virginia until after the Richmond Theater fire. Reese Isaac summed it up by saying that, uh, the difference is, by saying that the evangelicals had well-ordered lives and high-spirited worship, where traditionally Virginia's Episcopalians they had high-spirited lives, but very orderly <laughs> worship. Um, uh, I think a, a good example of this would be the uh, George Mason's family Monteith uh, from Gunston Hall. Now, uh, the purpose of a Monteith is to chill a wine glass, so you'd hook the end of the glass right here, and then you'd dip the bowl into some ice water to keep it chilled. This was also for generations, the family baptismal font. Um, and which is which is interesting. Uh, As as Lauren Winter writes, in a society that draws a sharp boundary between the things of God and the things of man, punch bowls do not sit on altars. But to Virginians, baptism was neither dramatic nor an interruption. Becoming a Christian occurred in the midst of a polite ceremony, and the religious life it inaugurated was one of polite coexistence with the world. Um, And as I pointed out, the theater fire I believe was really a departure point from, from this point of view, and it allowed evangelical morality and churches to assume a much more dominant role in the lives of Virginians, and in their social and cultural fabric. There were other factors too, of course. Now, the Anglican Church, the state church, had become very depressed in Virginia. Um, It had gone from a position of great influence as being the only game in town, state-supported church, to being uh, one that was very weak. It was disestablished in 1786, and the state was dotted with ruined Anglican churches. Um, To give an idea of the change in a very short time, At the beginning of the Revolutionary War in 1776, there were 164 uh, Anglican churches and chapels in Virginia. There were 72 left at the war's end in 1787. And by 1811, 40 Episcopal churches in the state of Virginia could support a full-time minister. The problem seemed insurmountable, and while John Marshall, who gave to a proposed theological seminary, did donate money, he, as one bishop wrote, could not refrain from saying that it was a hopeless undertaking and it was almost unkind to induce young Virginians to enter the Episcopal ministry, the church being too far gone ever to be revived. Other denominations were having similar struggles as well. Um, In 1811, uh, it's a little surprising to realize that there were only four churches and one synagogue in Richmond to serve a population of 10,000 people. And ministers seized the opportunity. They saw the fire as a real uh, opportunity, uh, spiritual opportunity in Virginia. New ministers journeyed. They saw the dearth of religious institutions and opportunities for conversion and they came. One of these was Presbyterian John Holt Rice who had been in in further south in Virginia for some time. And he came, he was the the, um, founder of uh, First Presbyterian here in Richmond. Um, he arrived in the months following the fire, and in May of 1812, he spoke at the Mason's Hall here in Richmond, which was one of the few public buildings large enough to uh, support a a large crowd. And he wrote, I was surprised to observe the very great numbers who attended church in this place. Every house of worship was crowded, and I was told that not less than 500 went away from the Mason's Hall where I preached, unable to find seats. Spirit of reading and of inquiry for religious truth is spreading rapidly among our town folks. And one of those who was at the Mason's Hall that night was Caroline Homassel Thornton. Um, But to go and hear him, she had to lie to her parents and sneak out of her house. She wrote, I can only think of that one act of deception which I practiced toward my parents, going to hear Mr. John Rice preach by stealth with a friend of mine. I was forbidden by them both. And remember, they didn't want her to become one of these evangelicals. They suspected that their somewhat emotional daughter might be swayed by emotional appeals but the sermon did change her life forever. Um, And she wrote, it showed me where true riches alone could be found and gave me my first insight into my real condition, which was a sinner. And amid all the splendor of a gay life and the indulgence that surrounded me on every side, I longed for that living water. And her life to many of her contemporaries and to us today doesn't seem morally objectionable, but she soon began to describe it as being gay and dissipated. And while she'd previously accompanied her husband to card games with other doctors and such, um, she wrote now that she had discontinued. Quote, the light was shown me and how could I be happy in darkness? And she wasn't the only one. Enthusiasm for amusements like gambling in the theater did seem to wane in general after the Richmond Theater fire. Uh, not a complete extinguishment for the rest of the century, obviously, but a significant tempering occurred. Um, other historians have marked 1811 as a cultural turning point for Richmond and I think this is the case. This is, this is why. One wrote, from this time a change was wrought in Richmond. The character of the people changed from a love of sport and frolic to a more serious sober state of mind. This is a broad brush but hyperbole notwithstanding, the theater wasn't rebuilt until 1819. So almost a decade um, and During that time there were occasional shows that would come through, you can't completely suppress people's desire for some entertainment. Um, Samuel Mordecai uh, wrote to his sister in North Carolina that the quality of these entertainments was absolutely terrible and he longed for the day when they might have um, something like the theater again offering more quality entertainments. After one, one performance he wrote, such discord, such awkwardness and such ugliness I never saw combined in any other set Ulysses would have required no wax to stop his ears had the sirens sung thus. The shawl dance was a jig by a ponderous lady holding a scarf. The mathematical experiments were the old sleight-of-hand tricks. And in shock, he wrote, at least 400 persons were present at this exquisite entertainment. Um, So the theater's fortunes did slip, and you do see attitudes toward entertainment change. But churches obviously benefited from this new climate. Um, Let's take monumental church we're going to talk about the theater fire, not to mention the growing influence of evangelicals in Virginia, then we of course need to look at Monumental. Um, this was a combination Episcopal church and a memorial to the theater fire victims. It was finished um, in the mid 18-teens, designed by Robert Mills, who's uh, better known for the uh, Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., also a number of other buildings like the Treasury Building. Um, he, this is the crypt beneath the church uh, the church was built directly on the site of the theater fire. Uh, down below, they buried uh, all of the theater fire victims all together in a mass grave, very unusual for the time. Um, this is uh, in the portico space right here. Uh, there is a memorial to the victims, a mourning urn on the top, uh, and all the names of the victims are engraved uh, in the sides here. It's been beautifully restored. This is an older picture. Um, And when the church was built, they brought in a new minister from New York, Reverend Dr. Richard Channing Moore, and he introduced an evangelical period of Episcopalianism that lasted for the next 70 years. Uh, He introduced things like prayer meetings, extemporaneous prayer, um, and he attracted the influential to his services too and frequently brought his congregations to tears. So he was employing some of these um, new, uh, more evangelical uh, patterns to the church services where they had not previously existed. And overall, you see in the 10 or 20 years after the church, the number of churches quadruple and the number of charitable societies associated with these churches grows exponentially. Well, what if Caroline Homassel Thornton? She eventually moved to her husband's family home in Rappahannock County, and much to her friends' dismay, she became a Baptist. <laughs> In later life, she did return to the Episcopal Church, and besides the fact that her children were baptized into the Episcopal Church, I surmise that um, the growing evangelicalism of the denomination made it increasingly appealing to her. She died at 83, and Caroline, who saw so many deprived of a good death, had one of her own. Her obituary wrote that her faith never seemed to waver, and she passed away with words of praise to God for his many mercies. She's buried in a Hill Cemetery by the side of the aunt and uncle, to whose memory she was so devoted. The monumental church, that memorial to the victims of the theater fire, was also spared a tragic end, although it hasn't been used by a congregation since the 1960s. Thanks to the historic Richmond Foundation, this architectural treasure survives on Broad Street, and it's being gradually restored. You can see here, this is a picture I took earlier this year, and it's of the, um, the repainting that they did. They um, have restored it to the original original colors. I'd encourage each of you if you have not been there and if you are interested in the theater fire to please go and visit the monumental church it's an opportunity to stand where the victims once did to visit the memorial where their families traced their names and to remember everything that transpired there Robert Mills wished to have a painted mural in monumental of Richmond rising from the ashes of the theater fire like a phoenix that never was completed and although the painting wasn't wasn't finished. Um, the church itself stands as that reminder that life continues after terrible tragedy, that hope can follow despair. And reading at my desk about survivors like Caroline Homassel Thornton, their lives bear witness to the same encouraging truth. As St. Augustine wrote long ago when calamity struck in Rome, this awful catastrophe is not the end but the beginning. History does not end so, it is the way its chapters open. So, Thank you again for your interest, and if you are interested in going to Monumental Church, we have a little bit of information up here, um, some contact information if, if you'd like to see it for yourself. Um, and also, uh, if you'd like to learn more about the fire, I also have a website, theaterfirebook.com, and that has a little bit more information um, about my continuing research on this event. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for having me today, and I look forward to answering some of your questions. Few people with microphones. All right. How did the uh, towns and cities uh, organize themselves
0: to respond to fires in that era, and was that
1: organization and response changed as a result of this fire? Uh, are you you're speaking about the fire departments? Perhaps. Yes. Um, there were several. Uh, there were several volunteer fire organizations. Here at the VHS there's a broadside from one of the early, one of the Union Theater Fire, or the Union Fire Company. Um, and it was entirely volunteer. People were expected to keep um, buckets and their equipment, some equipment in their home so they could respond quickly. Um, they would ring bells in whatever ward the fire was occurring. Um, but. Uh, there, I did find a record that a fire engine, and by that I mean a cart with a pump on it, it was nothing, you know, very sophisticated. Um, it did make it to the scene, but by that time it was obviously so far gone that it just would have been a, a drop in the bucket, nothing meaningful to extinguish it. And after the fire, um, there are several, um, there are several. Uh, notes in the paper advertising the formation of new fire companies. One is uh, by local mechanics in the city, and mechanics would be people who worked with their hands, the the blacksmiths, the um, people who did more manual labor, and they founded their own fire company. Uh, I think it was quite clear that whatever they had was not timely or sufficient for a major disaster like the theater fire.
0: You mentioned that you mentioned that the doors open inward. Did they, after that, did they in public buildings start putting them uh, so that they would open outwards?
1: Uh, you, you do see that in some cases. Uh, but again, there, there was nothing mandating or requiring it. And you don't really see uh, legislation regarding building codes or people uh, enforcing it until in any kind of meaningful way until the 20th century. So, uh, for instance, in Monumental Church, I believe some of the doors there open inward also. And in several of the um, theaters that opened later in the century in Richmond, there were other um, there were other disasters. People uh, burning things, uh, filling the, the theater with smoke. Um, it 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 did not significantly curb. Uh, the kind of faulty construction, unfortunately. Although there was a, a real rush of advertisements after the theater fire that I found from theaters advertising the safety of theirs, and they would list <laughs> in New York, in Charleston. They they were not going to lose customers over this, so they encouraged people. Ours is not like that one in Richmond. Uh, hello. I heard that uh is it true that Gilbert Hunt, who the slave, did he gain his freedom after rescuing those people? i heard that story. He 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 did, but not for that reason. He he bought his own freedom. Uh, and Samuel Mordecai, who I mentioned earlier uh, in his reminiscences about life in Richmond, uh, remarks about, and I don't think anyone would characterize him as a particularly. Uh, enlightened person by modern standards but he said if anybody should be freed for their services to the city it's Gilbert Hunt he saved lives in the theater fire in a later fire that happened at the penitentiary he saved a number of lives in conjunction with a, with a, a fire department um, and he thought it was a shame that the people of Richmond had not seen fit to free him um, eventually he did buy his own freedom he briefly lived in Liberia came back to Richmond and um, and was a, a leading figure in the african-american community uh, here for for decades
0: you indicated that this theater was replaced by another theater what happened to that theater and where was it
1: um that theater was uh, it was built in 1819 and uh some it was not the marshall theater i think it was also referred to as the richmond theater the marshall theater came a little bit later um, I can't recall. I'll have to look up where it was located because that, that's not coming to mind right away. Uh, it, it was said that it had subscribers. They, they had people um, subscribe to to put forward the money to build it. Uh, it was said that for the first uh, decade or two, it sort of uh, came on financial hard times. People had questions about its safety, too. Um, it did not enjoy the same kind of success that, that the first one did. And there's, there's more about that in, in, in the book, but but it was not what you'd call a resounding success. Any other questions? Nothing, no burning questions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, was Richmond a, a cosmopolitan place that you described it as a, down here at the state of course, that, that was the Richmond then. It's right near the Capitol, and you talked about it was a festive occasion. Could you elaborate on that? I mean, did they have uh, proper uh, public places for ladies, the governor's wife? Was it cosmopolitan instead of provincial, which it became later, I think?
1: Um, well, um, hmm. I think... Uh, I think that uh Richmond did it was said that the number of people who would come in were from a number of people who came in for the legislative session from a number of different states a lot of people from um from Richmond uh, from outside of Richmond kept homes in Richmond um so you do, and at the time there were a number of people in, in Virginia who were uh famous Virginians like the Madisons Monroes et cetera, who were in Washington DC who were overseas so you you do have some um Exposure to European and other American ideas. Uh, I think it was. To me, it sort of reminds me of Washington D.C. a little bit, where, where I live, which is, um, on one hand, it's it's brilliant, it's artistic, and on the other hand, there there's a lot of um, there's a, a a lot of economic depression and um, kind of seamy undersides too. It's got both in the same place, and I think Richmond was a real a real mix back then. Uh, would you comment on the prints that were published in Philadelphia of the fire? Um, well, I think I can go back to it. Let me see if I can quick find it for you. Um, it's an aquatint. the The, author's, the artist's name was uh, Benjamin, I and mean, I can't recall his last name right now. Um, goodness, right there. Here we go. Um, it was. It was made. It's. It's a. Conjecture. We don't have any actual drawings of what the theater fire looked like from the time. So this would have been a conjecture. It's actually fairly accurate. It's got the bullseye window that that's described by the victims. Um, it has the right number of stories. Um, appears to be about the right size. You can also see across the street. There's uh, what was the um, First Baptist Church, and also some houses. There were several houses that that burned that were nearby the theater that night too. So. Um, it appears that the artist, although uh, although not from Richmond, had paid attention to the things that were published afterwards and had uh, made a very good effort to be accurate uh, in the representations. You also see a couple people in the corner, I don't know if you can tell in this image, but sort of standing idly by with their fire buckets. That's, that's pictured too. Yes, I was wondering uh, what was the decision behind not including a list of the decedents in your book. Um, I, at the time, um, it wasn't it wasn't a, a conscious decision, except that I. I I knew that I wanted to be able to add more information than I could about them, more biographical information. And so if you look on my website, I do have a complete death list on the website and I'm adding information about the people and the families um, slowly to it. Uh, I'm always discovering more about it. And so um, while I agree that it it probably would have been a good idea to put the, um, the list of the dead in there, it is a bit static because I am finding more information about them and in order to provide better context, I think I can do that on the website. Um, And also if people are interested in some of the victims, maybe give them some further leads.
0: Yes, as far as churches go, I understand uh, the architect Philip Johnson came and uh, saw the church. So apparently it's supposed to be pretty impressive.
1: It, it is. It's a very unique piece of architecture. Um, the monumental church itself uh, was one of the first dome churches that, um, let me see if we can get to it here. Sorry for the whiplash there. Um, this is one of the first dome churches uh, that Robert Mills built. And it's very unusual, especially if you look at a, a Bruton parish where they have the, um, the altar and the pulpit. The way that this church is oriented, uh, the, the pulpit is uh, directly in front instead of off to the side uh, it's a different it's a different kind of arrangement it's a different approach to uh, to church construction and quite avant-garde at the time uh, it definitely is uh, amazing and the beautiful floating staircases on the sides are, are worth the price of admission itself yes
0: yes I have a question I believe it was about 70 some people that are buried on the monumental but did they, was there a lot of deaths afterwards that, as a result of the fire?
1: Um, yes. Al, although I don't, in the weeks following, um, you come across a handful of people who were not included on the final monument. The monument is more or less the people who died that that night. Um, so there are probably about. Mm, four to six people who died in the, in, in the month or so afterward, um, but who are not included in the formal death list. And I'm sure there were many others. I mean, you're talking about very significant uh, amounts of people who would have smoke inhalation uh, issues or um, yeah. third degree yeah, burns. Right. And so I expect that the number of people who died as a result of injuries were, was probably more significant.
0: I have a question regarding the context of uh, Richmond in as far as other cities are concerned. Uh, I was impressed that uh, you said that uh, while Richmond was only 10,000 at the time, and I would like to know, too, how many of those were slaves, but I'm impressed that they had only 10,000, but that its liveliness uh, was at the time of the... uh, end of the season and the beginning of the General Assembly, I'd assume, uh, was comparable to Washington. Just how many other cities uh, were uh, similar to Richmond's size, and, and how can you say that 10,000 was big even then?
1: Um, well, in response to your first question, uh, Richmond's population of 10,000, uh, about half were enslaved. so. Um, that's the that's the figure, according to the census at the time. Um, in terms of comparisons to other cities, uh, I and general festiveness, <laughs> um, I think there were other there were other cities um, like New York and Philadelphia and Charleston that were able to support theaters, large other large places of entertainment. Um, uh, But as I mentioned before, Richmond seemed to be in somewhat of a special position because uh, the people in the state were um, very enthusiastic about the theater, uh, and culturally it was, I think, more acceptable there than it was in Philadelphia and in New York. You'd see a different class of people attending in Richmond than you would, say, in in New York. Um, And that would maybe change a bit over time, but... Uh, but that was the case. And I think Richmond at that, Richmond in the early Republic also had, uh, as I mentioned, a great deal of people who were um, very nationally known and well-respected. And so I believe that, uh, that that was another contributing factor to why people were so interested in what went on in Richmond and wanted to be a part of things, part of things there.
0: I know this, uh Uh, comment may make a true historian regurgitate, but have you given any thought with all the hype and uh, excitement that's uh, come about with regard to the Lincoln movie of taking your great material here and and developing this into a screenplay of some kind? (laughs)
1: Um, Funny you should mention that. I I have not actually taken steps toward turning it into a screenplay at this point, but um, recently a very nice short documentary was made about the Theater Fire for which I was interviewing and, and um, Paul Levingood was interviewed for it also and um, at the signing table where I'll be afterwards I have the, the uh, address, it's, it's free, you can access it online and it's a very nice um, about 15 minute uh, introduction to the Theater Fire with some great visuals and so uh, if you're interested at all please come up and I can give you the, the web address for that.
0: uh was there any involvement with insurance what were insurance companies uh or insurance of private people uh, part of it here
1: there was uh, at the time in richmond the mutual assurance society was in existence and i believe the building was insured there there's a there's a collection of papers here that james um i'm not if it's drenard or drenard uh papers um, he, he did some research about uh, the legal aspects of the theater and who owned it and who was responsible but um, interestingly enough people, people did not hold uh, either the Placid and green company or the theater owners financially responsible for any damage that I that I could determine
0: Please join me. in thanking